Welcome to Thrive HR, a podcast by Thrive Pass. In this show, we sit down with industry leaders to explore the world of HR and everything it has to offer. I'm your host, Andreas Deptola. We tried to pull out some of the history of uh, female entrepreneurs and black entrepreneurs because those stories are not told. We often, you know, even back in the day, they weren't necessarily considered entrepreneurs because a lot of their work was was maybe on the side of the economy, not necessarily in the middle of the economy. So we do we spent a lot of time trying to suss those stories out and telling their history as well. Welcome back to another episode of Thrive HR. Today, Andreas is joined by entrepreneur and venture capitalist Seth Levine. They discuss his journey in starting his VC firm, The Foundry Group. They talk about philanthropic endeavors and what motivated Seth to start the Pledge 1% movement. And lastly, they dive into Seth's book, The New Builders, face-to-face with the true future of business. Hey, Seth. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Andreas. Good to be here. So I always like to, you know, start our conversation with, you know, something unique about you, right? Is there something that even your partners at Foundry don't know about you at this point? That's a tough one, right? Because I've my partners and I have worked together for 20, more than 20 years. I think they they know everything about about me. I, I don't know that this is unique at all, in fact, but but they don't know this. But I'm I've recently become a pickup truck owner. And they are they are not, and they'll find that funny. Like, you know, we always joke, you know, I I, I own a little bit of like a little farm. My wife and I own a little farm and 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 I always joke, there's no such thing as a Jewish cowboy, but but I'm sort of M1. Like I did a deal in Texas one. Now I've got a bucket hat that someone bought me. And, but I really completed that by, my wife bought it, but we we got this truck to, you know, haul hay and things like that around. And when we when she brought it home, I did say, hey, by the way, I will this winter be in my Carhartt jacket and my, you know, my, my big cowboy hat at some point in this truck. Yeah, you, you definitely surprised me. The Jewish cowboy, it was a pickup <laughs> truck. I would not have guessed that in million years. This is certainly unique. So maybe let, let's go back a little bit and, and tell us the story, how you ended up at Foundries, you know, being being part of the, the founding team and how the, the partnership has evolved over the years. Yeah, it's a great story. So I, I was working at a firm called, it was originally called SoftBank Venture Capital, eventually was known as Mobius Venture Capital. I worked for Brad Feld, who's now my partner. We were in Colorado. It was a Palo Alto-based firm. And I worked there for a, a number of years. I was hired to be an associate and with the idea that I'd be there for two years and then I would leave. And two years turned into three years. Three years turned into four. They made me kind of a junior partner. And, and in, I'm going to say 2005, they were out raising another fund. And I actually sat down with Brad and said, hey, I am not quitting today but I want you to know I'm not going to stay for this fund. Like I, this has been fun. I've really enjoyed working with you, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to get to do like one deal as a super junior partner. It doesn't really make any sense for, for me to, to do this. And a lot had changed in my life. I had, you know, when I started at Foundry, I had, I'd been, I'd run a really big business. I took kind of almost like a step back in my career, kind of invested in myself, wanted to try venture because I thought it might be interesting. And, you know, but fast forward a couple of years, I was married. I, we had had our first kid and, and I was kind of ready to, you know, spread my wings a little bit. And, and Brad responded by saying, you know, actually, I don't think this fund is going to come together. I've been thinking about maybe we should do something on our own. Would you be open to a conversation about that? 
And that's, he and I started talking. We, we invited a couple of colleagues from, from the California office of Mobius at the time to join us in that conversation. And, and that in 2006 is what led to the foundry being started, right? Ryan and Jason, our two California colleagues moved out in 2006. We kind of did this back when you had to like write an offering memorandum and things like that to start a fund. And we, and that's how we kind of kicked foundry off. And, and part of the story that's important that I like to make sure that founders here, because it, it's important to me at least, is that that was an all chips on the table experience for me. It was not an inexpensive proposition to start a venture fund, legal fees, et cetera. I had, you know, I'd been in, I'd worked through the bubble, had made and then lost some money. I had a little bit of savings, but not a lot. And I put 100% of my savings on the line to start Foundry all in. And in fact, in the middle of 2000, it was started fundraising for real in, in January, end of January, 2007. By spring 2007, it looked like it wasn't going to happen. I, and I actually vividly remember coming home one day, we you know, had a, you know, had the no's come first. We had another no. And I remember coming home, talking to my wife and saying, I think I just lost our life savings. Like, I think, I don't think this is going to work. I don't think we're going to be able to do this. And I'm going to, and, and maybe even worse than that, I'm going to have to go find a real job after being a VC for maybe four or five years at that point. And uh, unfortunately, of course, you know, we were able to raise and, and sort of the rest is history. Now we manage to three and a half billion dollars. But but that founding story is, I think, is important. And, and uh, you know, and we were we were young. This was 15 plus years ago, right? I was in my early 30s and it, it just was a, it was very different, very different time. It's easy to look back and think of it as like, I was always going to be successful, but like going through it was really challenging and it, and it almost didn't work. Well, it's, it's interesting to hear that a failure essentially created something really phenomenal, right? You were at the old firm and raising the next funds didn't work, right? And it seems like yeah. you and Brad took that as an opportunity to say, hey, let's, let's do something, something new here. So there was certainly a lot of success, right, over the years building the firm and whatnot. What were what is some of the the more rewarding stories that you had since you started Foundry? Yeah, I mean, I think about sort of three three types of people come to mind when you ask that question. I mean, one is just the relationship that I have with my partners. We really built. We've expanded the firm now, but we but we've really built a close knit firm. And and Ryan, Jason, and Brad. Jason's now retired, but and he and I remain extremely close. But Ryan, Jason, and Brad are, are amongst my absolute closest friends. And it was, I mean, maybe it was just place and time, and it was we were young enough at the time, and and it just I don't know our we just kind of grew up together to some extent, vacationed a lot together. Our families are friends, so that's. You know, that's one thing that's been really important. The relationships that that I have with the portfolio CEO is really important. And that's not just, I'm going to think about a conversation I had the other day with a, a CEO who's now a multiple time CEO in our portfolio. He had a very successful company. So it's easy to point to those companies and, and we made a lot of money and it was kind of my first big success at Foundry. But but not just those CEOs, right? There, there are CEOs that I'm still very close with whose businesses actually were not successful, but where we developed an enduring friendship and an, an enduring relationship. And and you know, we're we think of ourselves as a relationship-based venture firm. And so those relationships matter. And and you know, I'm I'm approaching Approaching 15 plus years with a with a number of those of those people that that have now run companies or been senior managers at our companies. And, and that's that's really important to me. Like when I think back on the success of Foundry, I think about those relationships. And then the last thing is sort of the the investors that supported us, right? And, and there are a number of investors who the strategy has evolved a little bit over time. So we have some new investors as well, which is great. But there's a number of investors that have been with us 
the whole way. I was actually just talking to the very first investor that ever said yes to Foundry was AMG down in Denver. And it wasn't that it was a really big check, but it obviously was a meaningful check. He was literally the first person that said, I believe in you guys. And we he's still an investor in Foundry and 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 he's still been incredibly supportive. And I that's so important to me. Like that relationship in particular is so important because he was willing to take that risk. And so so I think about those types of stories that that really kind of punctuate and highlight like why I still do the work that I do. I mean, I, I don't do this. I don't I do this because I love the relationships and that's what's important to me. And that's really what drives, at least for me, and I and I, I know for for Brad and Ryan and, and also our newer partners, that's what drives our excitement to continue on. Yeah, and it seems like in all three things that, that you mentioned, it was really the relationship, right? That that's kind of the, the common factor here that that was very meaningful and, and rewarding for you. You know, over over the time you were also part of the pledge one percent movement, right? For for all audience that might not be as is familiar with the concept. Describe what, what the movement is all about and what your involvement there is. Yeah. So I co-founded Pledge 1% along with a, a couple of other entrepreneurs. It was an offshoot of something that we've been involved in for a while uh, called the Entrepreneurs Foundation. There was a, a couple different chapters of it. And basically the idea is to encourage companies to pledge, give 1% of time, product, profit, or equity back to local charities, Can make that connection to the local world in which they are building their businesses, right? In which they're employees. And, and it's an audacious statement, right? Because you're, you're talking about companies that are seed companies, series A companies, that stock may not be worth anything, right? I mean, likely it's not, but, but you're, you're boldly saying, Hey, I think this is going to be worth something. And I and when it is, I want to give back to my local community. It's really blown up in the probably 10 years or so since we kind of morphed what was Entrepreneurs Foundation into Pledge as a global organization. And we have 20,000 members. We've, we've distributed a billion dollars to local charities around the world. I mean, it is a, it's probably the best thing I've ever done in my life. Like what I, you know, what on my tombstone, as it were, like, you know, being a venture capitalist for 20 something years and whatever it's, you know, 30 years by the time I'm done with it, I, you know, like whatever, that's fine. And we've, we've been involved with some really iconic businesses and, and I'm not taking anything away from that, but, but I think pledge is going to be the thing that I look back on and I'm most proud of. And so you mentioned the, the amount of money being donated to the local communities, right? Any other tangible results or, or things that you said, like, you know, this, this really impacted the communities from, from your work there? Well, and I don't know the number of hours, but I mean, I mean, tens and tens of thousands of hours, because a lot of times what happens is companies really rally around the handful of, of charities or single charity that they've decided to, to pledge to, and then will often organize, you know, service days and things like that around that, that again, also benefit the community. And I, I just think, I think work needs to be meaningful and, and nothing wrong with working for a tech business, but I think it, it is more meaningful to work for a tech business if there's some something else involved. And I think what we found is that employees really, re that resonates with them. And I, you know, I say to founders, I, I think you should do this because it's the right thing to do. But but if you if you need to convince your board, there's a lot of evidence that uh, by by signing up and and being a participant in your sort of local community and 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 having some meaning with your business, you're more likely to attract and then retain uh, workers. So I you know I'm glad you asked me about it. And, and I, you know I sh I would be remiss not to give the website. I mean, it's pledge. It's easy. It's pledge spelled out one the number one percent dot dot uh, com and people can find out more about it because maybe we'll put it in the show notes but it's it's a great organization and they're doing really good work and man i should say foundry is a member as well so we've we've donated a lot i mean millions of dollars 
adjacent to the local community here in, in generally Boulder County, but Den- Denver as well through our participation in play. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the team aspect. I recall we, you know, at my organization, we had a couple of these days where we did volunteer work, right? And I had employers coming up to me afterwards and said like, well, this was the most meaningful day in my professional career, right? So by giving back, you certainly also you know, create team bonding and, and, and other things. So, so you mentioned the website, right? What are what are ways for for people to get involved in the organization? Yeah, I mean, I obviously it's great when people. I mean, wait, you can do any of the of the things I mentioned, right? You can you can organize a service day, pledge time, right? You can you can convince your company to to give a percentage of profits, right? Or in in some some companies' cases, a percentage of revenue. And you know, obviously, ideally, you also then pledge either some of your own equity, right? Which is which is more of a pledge, like you sign a pledge and saying, hey, I will do this when my options become worth something. Or as a business, you can actually give a warrant to pledge 1% that they hold and they actually become equity owners in the business, right? So that's a permanent way to really lock them into your cap table, which I think is great as well. And it, you know, frankly, signals to new investors what your values are. And I, I, I think that's important. It's probably both investors and employees, right? And yeah. we'll get to that later on in our conversation today, right? But it's such a tough, tight labor market. You probably attract certain people, right, by by being part of the movement. So Absolutely. thanks for sharing that. I want to move the conversation towards your new book, right? The, the New Builders. And, and maybe tell us a little bit, what was the initial motivation, right, to, to do the research and, 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 and write the book? Yeah, I appreciate you asking me about this. Like the writing a book is is not an easy easy task, and and particularly a book like this, right? It, it is not. I did not sit sit down, take some blog posts that I've written over the last ten years, and and sort of you know expound on them a little bit more with with just my additional thoughts. You know, we 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 did a lot of interviews, a lot of research. We spent an entire year sort of working on the on the base of the book. So the the book is really describing the future of entrepreneurship in the United States, and it's highlighting a couple of things that are maybe a little bit troubling about about that future. One is that entrepreneurship in the U.S. is actually waning, which is which was very surprising to me. That was not what I expected to find. It was surprising to everyone I've said that to. We may be having a moment here in COVID, so so perhaps there's a little bit of a resurgence of, of entrepreneurial spirit here in the U.S., but but the 40-year trend is negative. And part of that's because Silicon Valley has really eaten up the concept of entrepreneurship. So we, we when you say entrepreneur, people think of a tech entrepreneur. And if that was not true 100 years ago, we really thought about entrepreneurship much more broadly. And it's only been since really the 1980s, Ronald Reagan used entrepreneur as a way of essentially espousing capitalism and, and, and contrasting it to communism. And we, we talk about sort of the history of that in the book. But that's what started kind of narrowing this definition of entrepreneurship. And, and, and that's challenging. And at the same time, and this, I think, also relates to Silicon Valley and tech entrepreneurship is that we, we tend to only value businesses that can grow to be really large. And so we've forgotten that people start companies for lots of different reasons. And the vast majority of businesses, 99% of companies that are started in the United States do not take money from venture capitalists, despite what you might read in the press, right? And so, you know, that I think makes the, the, the combination of those two things makes people who are starting businesses feel not as empowered, frankly, by our overall society. What they're doing isn't as important as we used to describe it, right? I mean, you go way back, everyone in the US was an entrepreneur. There weren't big companies a couple hundred years ago. And, and so, you know, so we talk about that. The, the people that are starting businesses 
today are significantly different than the people start, that started businesses 50 years ago. Very specifically, women start businesses at four times the rate of men. Black women start well over half of all the, the businesses that women start. There's a bunch of reasons for that, which we talk about in the book. But but white males are actually the minority now of business owners in the US. We don't do a very good job of connecting capital and resources to new builders to these women and people of color who are starting companies. And, and that's perhaps all of these things are, you know, the, the the last four things I mentioned are why entrepreneurship is is waning in the US. So the book is really, really challenges readers to say, hey, what are we going to do about this? And 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 I hope for people that are a little bit more in kind of the Silicon Valley mindset opens their eyes to sort of the broad fabric of entrepreneurship across the US. I really want to take that that word back. I and mean, it was so so surprising. We came up with the name New Builders because we wanted to give this next generation of entrepreneurs some agency. We, you know, we wanted to be able to give them a, a, a label, if you will. I mean, and they and people that we've profiled in the book and, and others that we've talked to love it. They 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 feel really strongly that, that that's a they, you know, wow, yeah, I'm a new builder, right? I mean, I'm building something. I'm I'm the next generation. But one of the things that was very surprising to me is to a person, none of them identified as being an entrepreneur. When I would refer to them or my co-author would refer to them as an entrepreneur, they would say, no, 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 I'm not an entrepreneur. I just started this, this business. And, and again, this speaks to why it's so pernicious that, that Silicon Valley has taken over that word, because really we, we need to recapture that, right? There are lots of great people doing really interesting work that are very entrepreneurial that we, we need to, we need to be calling entrepreneurs because that's exactly what they are. So anyway, the book, the book talks about that. We trace the history of entrepreneurship in the U.S., which actually was something that had not been written about. I, I, I happened to write that chapter and I just assumed I'd, you know, I'd read the 10 books on entrepreneurship in the, in the U.S. and kind of summarize things and pick pick things from it or whatever. I, I, that was not true. I found one book that described the history of it. It was super wonky and really, really hard to get through. It's not, not necessarily something I would suggest people read. And I, I wrote I wrote the chapter on it because I was like, wow, we really, I mean, it could have been an entire book. It was, I, I think I cut the chapter in half when I finished it because I, I went a little bit, a little bit crazy about it. But, but it was a really interesting history that's important for people to understand. In particular, we tried to pull out some of the history of female entrepreneurs and black entrepreneurs because those stories are not told. We often, you know, even back in the day, they weren't necessarily considered entrepreneurs because a lot of their work was was maybe on the side of the economy, not necessarily in the middle of the economy. So we do we spent a lot of time trying to suss those stories out and telling their history as well. So anyway, hopefully that gives your listeners a flavor for what it's about. It was a real passion project for me. I did not start out thinking that Elizabeth, my co-author, and I would write this this exact book. We we actually we thought entrepreneurship was thriving and we knew there were some interesting stories to be told of of, of entrepreneurs that were kind of you know, not white males, essentially not being told in the mainstream press. And and we thought it was going to be kind of a lighthearted, almost like a coffee table style book. We're going to call it Faces of Entrepreneurship. We're going to tell some of these stories. We do that. We tell some of the stories, but it, it, in a very different way and obviously with a very different backdrop than we thought going into it. Not to mention the pandemic, right? I mean, that obviously sped up our, our desire to get the book out. We actually wrote it pretty... We did the research over a year that was preceding the pandemic. And then we were just starting to write it as the pandemic hit. And we really rushed to get the book out because we knew these stories needed to be told and, and told urgently. Yeah, and your, your passion certainly shines through this, this conversation, right? Which is great to see. I'm curious to know, like you, you mentioned the research you did, you did interviews and whatnot on a very practical basis, right? What What, what is it to, to write a book, right? On a day-to-day -day basis. Was there like a certain 
methodology? Did you talk to a couple of people who have done it before? Like, how did, how did you actually go about this? Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I did. I mean, my partner Brad's written some books. I have some other friends who've written books, but they were they were di very different types of books, and so they were incredibly helpful as readers and reviewers. But but the process was pretty different for Elizabeth and me was pretty different. And you know, she and she hadn't written a book yet. She's a journalist, but she had not written a book either. And so we really kind of learned as as we went. Now, interestingly enough, there's no like software that you can use when you're collaborating to write a book. There's some software you can use when you're writing on your own. And so we're, we're, we're literally doing this in Google Drive and in Google Docs, right? I mean, you know, people, you assume there's some sort of like software thing, you open it up and you, no, literally we had a couple folders that we were saving interview notes in and things like that. And, you know, then we decided it's time to start writing the book. And so we opened up a new Google Doc and titled it, oh, the new builders chapter five or whatever the first one we wrote was. And then we started writing. By the way, we don't, we didn't write it chapter one through chapter 16, we actually ended up kind of jumping around a little bit. But a lot of our work, again, the year leading up to the pandemic was, was research. So we did a lot of interviews. That included a bunch of academics, people that were studying entrepreneurship. We read a lot of, of articles, but, it, but then also talking to entrepreneurs, networking our way into other entrepreneurs and, and, and people who had interesting stories. And the way that we kind of constructed the book each chapter has a little bit of a theme. There's a few that kind of weave throughout the entire book. We try to punctuate those themes with a combination of data. So research backed, there's, I don't know how many endnotes there are. There's hundreds of endnotes in the book. So it's, it's all researched, but then also punctuated with stories. And so we really tell from a narrative perspective, we tell the stories of I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 different new builders to describe some of the, the challenges that they faced. So it, it was really, I mean, it truly was a new, as you mentioned earlier, you can hear the passion. Like it was a real labor of love. I am, I'm really proud of the work. I think it came out. I think it was well written, and it came out really well. And 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 I, as a as just a human, I learned a lot. I by not just about the subject, but also just about writing, right? Narrative writing in particular. And and you know, I I can I thank Elizabeth, my co-author, for that because she really. She was such a strong narrative writer, and she really put the screws to me to make me learn how to how to write that. We we really shared the the load here in terms of writing the writing the book. So anyway, it was great, and it was kind of I mean people people talk about you know hey what was your COVID you know bonus like you know did you pick up yoga did you start to you know whatever and and for me it was I got I had a lot of time that I wasn't traveling because I I was traveling a lot for my job and I, I was I I last or two summers ago now when we were actually writing it. 5,000 words a week. I, I blocked off usually half a day, sometimes even a full day on Tuesdays and Fridays, non-scheduled. And I would write 2,500 words. And some some weeks that was a couple hours and I went back to my my normal job. You know, other days that would take me, you know, all day to get five or 2,500 words written. But, but that was kind of what we needed to do to get, again, this was a little bit faster than you'd normally write because we were trying to get it out just given the COVID was raging and, and it was really disproportionately affecting new builder businesses. So we were like, let's do this. Yeah, it's interesting to, to hear about your focus and discipline, right? To, to have a certain goal, right? With the writing per day. I'm sure you went into this project with certain assumptions, right? You've been in the ecosystem for a long time, right? You, you talked to many founders over the years, whether from the data side or from the stories that you heard, what were maybe some of the the more surprising elements, or maybe the, the more remarkable things that you didn't expect going into this? 
Absolutely. I mean, there's a laundry list of them, starting with just the basic thesis or theme of the book, which is that entrepreneurship is waning and that the people that are starting businesses today don't look like they did 50 years ago. I had no idea that women started businesses at four times the rate of men or that Black women were the fastest growing group of new entrepreneurs. And everyone we shared those data with also had not heard that. Yeah, Yeah, they were totally, I mean, the most common response we got was, that's not right. And we had a bunch of data sources. It wasn't we didn't make it up, right? I mean, we you know we really pushed hard to 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 do this analysis, and and it's absolutely right. And so that was really interesting to discover. And I you know I think that overall it really opened my eyes to this incredibly rich fabric of entrepreneurship that's taking place all around me, all around all of us that we just often overlook and we just don't think about, right? I mean, and so when I'm in a store now on Main Street. I, you know, and there's someone who's working there. I, I will ask, hey, is this your store? Do you own this? And and I love now having conversations with these people that are these these business owners because I think that their stories are so powerful. And I, I just was walking through the world completely blind to that, right? And and you know, happy to always order over Amazon and and not worry about, you know, sort of what does that mean to my community? Just like I just want what's convenient. And and nothing wrong with ordering on Amazon. I you know, I order regularly for my wife and I order regularly from Amazon, but sometimes maybe not. Right. And, and, and like really being thoughtful about, I'm going to go to my local business and, and, and buy this thing that I know I want to get. I also have taken to, and this is maybe also a little bit of a COVID benefit because I, I feel like I'm not quite as much in a rush all the time, but Aaron running for me had always been like a check the box thing. Like, okay, I'm going to go here. I'm going to go here. I'm going to go here. I'm going to do it as fast as possible so I can get done with this stuff and then go home. And I've, I've taken to a little bit more of a relaxed version of that, especially when I'm shopping at smaller businesses and just allow myself the freedom to just enjoy a little bit and kind of wander around, maybe get something I wasn't expecting and wasn't thinking about. And I think that that, that was one of my, t- my takeaways from the book and meeting new builders and being in these businesses is, is to just take a moment and look around a little bit more. And so so for me that was that was my takeaway. I don't I don't know which of these things if any resonate with you but I I I hope that this idea of kind of slowing down is something that we maybe will all grasp onto post covid. Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting that that you mentioned that, right? The pandemic obviously was very difficult for 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 many of us, right? In 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 different regards, right? But to also think and reflect on like what were some of the positive outcomes, right, of of that crisis, right? And yeah. Whether that is slowing down or whether it's restructuring the business or spending more time with the family, right? I'm, I'm sure a lot of people have different views on it, but I appreciate you sharing that view. So we, we talked about the, the the pandemic, right? And I'm curious to hear from you, you know, what do you see with, with all of your portfolio companies, right? Around the topic of the great resignation, right? Everybody is talking about it, right? You know, what, what are your main observations right now that, that what's going on in the, the businesses that you are close to. I hope that my main observation is it seems to be slowing down, but I'll, I'll tell you from my perspective, and I'd love your perspective as well, Andreas, but I, it was real, right? I mean, we, and it, whether it was a result of people reevaluating what was important to them and, and wanting to do something different, maybe it was a result of, of sort of a new freedom to maybe work where, from wherever you wanted to, but lots of different reasons. I think people decided to, to kind of rethink their relationship with work. And, and, and so we absolutely saw that really, and it was not concentrated in any location. 
because we have businesses all over the country, was not concentrated in any specific positions, right? People in marketing were just as likely to be resigning as people in, in you know, in engineering or product. And, and, you know, I think that it was, it was a real challenge for businesses because one of, one of my observations was that there was a little bit of, of sort of people moving around for more money, right? And, and the job market got tighter and and more expensive, but that's not really what I'm talking about here, right? Like that was going to happen. And those weren't people that were part of the great resignation. Those were people that just said, Hey, someone's willing to offer me $50,000 more. I'm going to go do that. And there's not a whole lot you can do about that, right? Especially as a startup, you have limited resources. I'm talking about the people that that it it wasn't, you could throw any, any amount of money at them. It wasn't, that just wasn't what they wanted to do. They wanted to get some time and and go do something. And, and I think people felt very trapped and constrained physically with, with COVID. And I think that that resulted for some people when COVID ended, especially if they, they maybe didn't have kids or their kids were already older and them saying, Hey, I, I want to live my life differently, at least for a little while. But my observation though, interest, and I, I'm curious if you're seeing this as well, is that that seems to be slowing down. Like the people that, that sort of felt like they needed to redo something about and, and, and maybe live a little bit of a different way that that happened and they left. Some of them maybe are starting to come back. I think maybe a little bit early for that, but but I don't see that as much anymore. And maybe that's inflation's rising, the job market's softening, and and people are saying, "Hey, I, I'm not really guaranteed a job now when I come back." But I don't know. What are what are your observations of that? Yeah, happy to share here on on the Stripe side. But in all all transparency, prior to the pandemic, we were really office focused. So we had three different locations: Denver, Twin Cities, and then New Delhi, India. Right. So that that's kind of like, and and we had that not from a perspective of like micromanaging and whatnot, but we are growing so fast that we said like we all have to be in one office and, and collaborate and, and this and that. Right. So that that was prior to the pandemic. Since we have absolutely hundred percent the hybrid model and that that was a really really positive impact to the business right we were able to attract really great talent right and and but we have certainly seen some of the results of the great resignation as well right much higher turnover than we saw in the years before and and i, I recall precisely we had a board meeting and that's now almost two years ago and decided at that point like we said like hey like this will not this is not solved next Tuesday, right? This will become a thing for the upcoming years. So we really made uh, and attract and retain the best talent, like a strategic initiative of the company, right? So really investing into, in, into culture, looking at, okay, if somebody leaves us, how can we now raise a bar? Right. And, you know, I think with, with a lot of these things in life, it's, it's all about like your, your attitude and your frame, framework, right? How you deal with those things it doesn't make it easier in the, in the situation, right? If somebody really important leaves you, right? But I think that that's, that, that's, a, that was certainly helpful for us. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. This, this point that you bring up about being more flexible on location is just such an interesting one. And, you know, we're seeing companies kind of all across the board, right? We've got a few that are, are have said, Hey, we're going to be totally virtual from now on. We'll see how long that lasts, but that's, that's their view. And we had a couple, by the way, we're essentially virtual the, you know, before the pandemic. So, you know, that certainly is, is possible. We've had a couple that have said, Hey, no, we're an at the work you know, in the office kind of place and we're going to go back. And then, and then I'd say the majority are kind of where you are, which is saying, well, we're willing to be flexible, but, but I think having to then change the way that they do things, because it's hard to have meetings when you have some people in the room and some people on zoom and things like that. And so, you know, I think people are still trying to digest that. And we're doing that too at, at Foundry, right? I mean, we have a, 
you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's not a big business, but a, a reasonable sized business. We have I don't know, 16 of us, 17 of us, something like that. And, and we've hired some people. We have someone now in New York. We have someone in LA. And, you know, so we're, and we've been, so we've been open to that. And I think that's helped us attract talent, but we've had to be thoughtful about how do we integrate those people of oh, someone in New Jersey as well. How do we integrate those people into our daily and weekly cadence as a business? It's certainly a challenge like these hybrid meetings, right? Where we have certain people, more certain people in the room and you obviously want to make sure everybody is, is fully engaged, right? And, and can participate. Our solution has been if anyone is hybrid, everyone we can be in a room together still, but everyone needs to be on their own laptop. And so we, because we do, we have we have Monday as a lot of people do in our industry. We have Monday partner meetings, and they're pretty long, right? There could be three plus hours, yeah. sometimes longer. And and it's very often that that at least some of us are not there. It's, this is our entire investment team. So that includes some people that don't live in Boulder, where the sort of majority of the partners live. And so, so that's what we've done is we might, you know, we might have four or five of us in a room, but we all open up our laptops so everyone can really see what's going on, hear what's going on and participate as if they're kind of on the same, same level. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure technology will only improve, right? And, yep. and, and make that easier for us. You mentioned specifically here the shortage of labor in certain industries, right? We talked about inflation. W- what are your predictions here over the upcoming years, how that might change? And then also, maybe as a second part of my question, what have you seen from, from companies that they have done really well to kind of navigate that challenging time? I mean, my sense is that employees want meaning with their work, right? And I, and I think that, and this relates a little bit back to the discussion we had about Pledge 1%. I think it's not enough to just say, hey, we offer competitive salary and decent benefits, right? And thrive fast, right? I mean, that's those are great. Like you should, every company should should treat their their employees fairly, their vendors fairly, et cetera. But I think, I think employees are looking for a little bit more than that out of their work. They want to feel like they're participating in something that's that, that's meaningful, that's important, and, and that the, the business cares about something, right? And it doesn't, I mean, it does matter what that is to individuals, but I, but in the, in this context, it sort of, it could be anything, right? That, that could be rallying around a charity that could be around, you know, something that you're doing that you think is important for industry and, and you're recruiting people that believe that and, and want to be a part of that. But I, I think that that's, to me, what's kind of most important. And I think the companies that we have that are most successful with that, they're very clear about what that is. It's top, it's, it's driven by the CEO. There's a, a large degree of openness and communication. I, we've got a number of CEOs kind of taking after Scott Dorsey, who was the, the CEO of, of, gosh, I'm spacing out it, but was sold to, to Salesforce. It'll come back to me in a second. But he wrote a, a Friday letter every Friday to his company. And we've got a bunch of CEOs that are modeling the Scott Dorsey model and they're going, you know, they're sending out a, a weekly email. Like I think that that those are the kind of things that make people feel involved, informed, et cetera, right? The days of like, look, put your head down, do your job. We'll all do our jobs. Like that's just not how people work anymore. And I think that's, I think it's fine. I think that's important. And I think embracing this sort of flexibility it's funny. I don't know why I was thinking about this movie, but I don't know if you remember Nine to Five, the, the Dolly Parton film. It was, it was, it was. It's a long time ago. I was a kid when it came out, so <laughs> we're in the U.S. at the time. But anyway, it, it, it's a funny story where they kind of kidnap their boss and and uh, and then he, and they make a bunch of changes to the workplace that you know that work incredibly well. This is again back in the seventies, and then he comes back and they're like, oh yeah, don't yeah, you you implemented all these policies and you know flexible working hours and and a nursery and things like. And, and so it's funny to think about that 
that movie in no. that context. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm sure many of your listeners will think will remember that movie and, and be like, yeah, that, and that was so like cutting edge back then. And we're finally starting to acknowledge like, hey, these things matter and people are more productive when they feel safe and secure, when they know that that these sort of basic things are being taken care of and when they have a little bit of control over their lives. And I think the reason that some workplaces just don't don't work out, I'm not going to single single out any any companies, but the reason that some of those, some workplaces don't work out is because they're just too rigid, right? And employees want to feel ownership and flexibility and feel like they're trusted. And I think empowering your employees and trusting them is something that, you know, that I think is really important. And we certainly, we try to do that in our own business at Foundry. Yeah, it's interesting that, that you mentioned that theme here of trust and transparency. I remember like about four years here at our business, we sent out a cultural survey, 63 questions. We have done the same survey now every six months, right? And we always look at like, what, what's our worst score, right? And initially it was transparency. And mm. it, it wasn't from a perspective that, that we as the founders didn't want to share anything, right? I think we were not aware of it, right? And then also we just didn't have the tools and frameworks in place, right? And then we were really intentional about like, how can we change that, right? And, and put I, I think it's so important. And I'm going to redo a little bit here just so I get the Scott Dorsey company right. You can edit that last <laughs> blunder out. But I think, I mean, you know, many of our companies are communicating very regularly. And, and one of the things that our CEOs are doing, many of our CEOs are doing is modeling after Scott Dorsey, who was the CEO of Exact Target that was bought by by Salesforce. Incredible leader. He's part of our world. He's, he runs a venture fund that we have an investment in. And, and he's actually talked about this to our portfolio CEOs. But he did this sort of very famous, he turned it into a book, actually, if you want to read it, but this famous like Friday letter series. And every Friday, no matter where he was in the world, he would send a letter to the entire company and just say, hey, this is what's on my mind. This is what I'm thinking about. And, and I'm fortunate enough to be on some of those emails, which gives me interesting insight into the into some of the businesses that we work with. I, but that's, that's one way. That's not the only way, but that's one way to just foster a little bit more connection between, between what the business is up to and, and, and you as an individual CEO and, and the entire business. And, and as you think about you know, a business that grows, the exact target was, I don't know how many thousands of people before it got bought. I mean, it was, it was a large business. And that relationship that people felt like they had one-to-one with the CEO is so important. And I guess like in that vein, like being able to be vulnerable as, as leader, right? And, and acknowledging the things you don't know and acknowledging the things that are not going well. And I think that that then truly can create that trust, right? Between leadership and the employees and the culture and whatnot. So one of the things that we discussed beforehand was, you know, the theme of mental health, right? And and how that was impacted in the pandemic and how companies can help their employees. And oftentimes we talk about resilience, right? How can you know, we, we as, as people be more resilient, certainly a topic that's interesting to me. What, what are your, what's your take on resilience? Can it be taught? Like what, what can people do to help their employers and to foster that in the organization? Yeah. I mean, I definitely believe, well, one, I believe mental health is a big challenge, especially in startups, especially startup CEOs, actually. So we pay a lot of attention to that, but I think more broadly across employee bases, I think it's really important. I, I think we sometimes don't appreciate the stresses, and by the way, this is true across our entire society. I don't think we always appreciate the stresses that people are under. And even just taking a moment to acknowledge that, we oftentimes we start meetings by doing a, a, a stoplight check-in. So we'll check in with everyone. You don't have to give any detail, but just, hey, how are you doing? Personal, professional, red, red, yellow, green. And that's really helpful. And we've had times where we were going to get into something 
And we've actually backed off and said, hey, you're red today. Let's do this a different day. I don't think this is a good day to get into this. And I think that that's, so that's an example, right? You know, we've, we actually, through the pandemic, decided to offer to all of our CEOs a access to a, a sort of a mental health, uh, so sort of a mental health slash mindfulness platform. And, you know, I do believe that that helps train people for, I, I did it myself too, by the way. And I, I found it very helpful. I, I thought it was, and I wasn't feeling particularly stressed out or, or like I was having a, a big challenge. But I, I think that the the takeaway for me was, you can train a certain level of mental resilience, right? And and overall resilience. And I and I think being clear with your employees that you care about this and, and that this is something that you value, whether it's sharing your own challenges and struggles, whether it's sharing, whether it's making something available to them, like like the platform that that we did for our CEOs and our employees, you know, or something, some other, some other other thing that you're doing to acknowledge it. But I, I think that that's important and and I think will continue to be important. People expect to be valued for their whole personhood, if that makes sense. And I think that that's very different than it was certainly when I started in business where people didn't want to know that much about your personal life. Like you left that at home, you worked and then you went home, right? Now we're all working from home. At least we did for a long time, right? So there was no boundary between personal and, and business. And I, and I think it actually humanized people, right? I think back to that, there was that famous CNN interview and it was only like four years ago, this guy's in spare bedroom essentially. And, and one of his kids comes crawling in and he's like trying to ignore it. And his wife comes in and like yanks him out and stuff. And everyone's like, oh my God, it was like crazy. And now like your kids have just become part of the background in Zooms, right? And, and when I was in a, uh, the office, it was attached to the house. My my kids would sometimes come in. I'd be like, "Hey, you got it. If you come in, you have to say hi, right?" And and so I, and I think a lot of people did that. And now they rec- now people know them. More, their coworkers know them as a little bit more of a whole person. And I think that's again, we're talking about technology workers here, right? This is not necessarily people that were frontline or working out of grocery stores. So that's a whole separate challenge. But I think people do know those folks as more of a whole person now, and we're not being forced to hide the fact that we have families. And that, that and that those families are a priority. I, I definitely feel in my career early on, I had to make ch- choice. I did not was not very forthcoming about you know sort of what my personal life was like and my family and things like that. And I had to make choices where I wasn't very clear with people. Hey, this choice is a bad choice for me because you're really asking me to do something that's not the right thing for my family or I need to be home. And I didn't felt like I feel like I had agency. And I really. I mean, if there's anything in my career I regret, it's really those sorts of moments where I I was not I didn't feel like I could prioritize family or I didn't feel like I could be as open about, you know, about my family as I, I think people now can be. And so I, I think that's a, a huge step forward. But to your point, you know, and to the point of your question, there are some real mental health challenges that people are are dealing with. And you can't make any assumptions, right? And you can't assume what's behind him. And, and in many cases, you can't ask what's behind him either, right? You just have to provide opportunities for people to, you know, for you to help people get on top of that and and, and gain that that resilience. Yeah, I love the idea of, and I, I might adopt that here with my kids, whenever they come in and they got to introduce themselves, right? I think that that's, uh, yeah. that's a great strategy. You mentioned that you guys invested into a platform for mental health and, and resilience. Are, are you, can you share the the name of, of that platform and how that helped the employer? Absolutely. And it's the, it's the platform that we, uh, that we offer. It's called Maru Health. So I appreciate you. I was going to, I wasn't going to offer it up because I didn't want it to feel like I was 
I was pitching a portfolio company, but 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 since you asked, and, and it was great. It actually was yeah. a. They had this really interesting thing where they send you a device and it measures sort of you match your breathing to your heart rate, and you learn to kind of control mm-hmm. your. And it's a really good way. For, especially for me, I was a, I'm a novice meditator, and I still consider myself to be a very novice meditator. I really I struggle with it. Like my brain is moving a million miles an hour, and most of my time meditating is me trying to stop my brain. Like I'll get like ten seconds of like okay, I'm not thinking about anything, and then something will pop in, and most of my time is like getting those thoughts out of my head so I can still be meditating. And you know, I mean, so maybe if I do a ten minute meditation, I get like a minute of actual meditation. But it's it's something like you try, and so I, I share that just because I, I don't want people to think like, oh, I'm this like guru meditator or something like that, and it's easy. Like it was hard, and and I thought Maru really helped me, you know, kind of figure out how to. Maybe it just gave me something to concentrate on because I'm watching my heart rate. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I'll focus on this. But but anyway, I, I thought it was really helpful. And there's more to the Maru platform. There's there are a bunch of sessions, and it's, it's sort of this like telehealth kind of thing that it takes you through, and you really learn about about triggers and 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 about how to kind of you know calm yourself and build that resilience. So I, mean, I think it's a great great opportunity for people to to really build up that that kind of resilience. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I'll also just check that out. And to your point, meditation, I think it's incredibly hard and it's a journey, right? So maybe that last question, if, if somebody wants to reach out and connect with you, maybe dive into any of the, the, the topics a little bit deeper, what, what's the best way to connect with you? Yeah, let me give you a couple things. So one is the book website is thenewbuilders.com. There's a bunch of bunch of stuff there that might be interesting for people. I am Seth at foundrygroup.com if you want to reach me. I'm also on Twitter somewhat actively and less so these days. I found that part of my mental health routine that I found that being on Twitter less was better, but I'm at Seth or S-E-T-H-E-R on Twitter. So those are all great ways to reach me. And of course, Foundry Group is foundry.vc. That's our website. And so you can learn more about all of the stuff that we do on there. And and uh, and if you're interested in in more more about venture and sort of other topics like this, I blog not a lot, but uh, you know, I've got I've been doing it for a long time, so there's a lot of content up on sethlevine.com. Perfect. Well, thank thank you so much for taking the time today. Really appreciate it. Uh, I had a lot of fun and learned a lot. So, and yeah, thanks again for your time. This is great, Andreas. Thank you for your thoughtful questions too. This podcast is sponsored by ThrivePass a trusted HR partner for innovative benefits technology. From lifestyle spending accounts to pre-tax to COBRA administration, ThrivePass has you covered. We personalize benefits. You thrive as the employer of choice. More at thrivepass.com.